We have looked at the three knobs underneath the pressure cooker, uh, shame, guilt, uh, and fear. And these three knobs are actually controls in our word picture of the gas flame underneath the pressure cooker. Well, as the, the guilt, the shame, and the fear increases, so creates the pressure in this pressure cooker. Now, what I used to hear from my and when I was at home while my mom was cooking, as I mentioned, I would hear this this noise coming out. And that was the safety valve, that was the little exit of pressure, if you please, that caused uh, the pressure inside of the pressure cooker to relieve some of its pressure. So the product or the food inside that's being cooked could uh, be cooked, but it also would keep the fresh pressure cooker from exploding and having tomato paste all over the ceiling. Now, as we continue to help work through the area of, of perfectionism, we, we've, after explaining to somebody about the guilt, shame, and the fear, we then go to ways that they are, shall I say, false ways, artificial ways, or maybe even unbiblical ways, of releasing the pressure. And so the next thing we do is try to have them understand uh, that what they're doing to relieve the pressure or to compensate. The perfectionist will select a number of areas to concentrate on in order to perform perfectly, and I may even add obsessively, even pockets of perfectionism. Now, if I'm discussing this on the telephone, with somebody, I'll have them visualize an egg, and then I'll say the whole egg represents, you know, the white part, all the areas of their life, home, work, school, car, clothes, job, things like that. And then I'll say, now picture within the egg the yolk area. Now this is what the perfectionist does. The, the perfectionist puts certain things inside the yolk, or a circle within the large circle, if you please. And he selects certain things out that, that he is going to work on controlling or feels he has the ability to control. And so I, I have them picture this egg with a yolk and then draw an arrow out of the yolk outside the circle or outside the egg. Now the question is, uh, what is taking place here? Well, Matthew 23 23-34, it's chapter 23, verses 23 and 34, explains this kind of practice. In fact, this is where much of this procedure has come from, as out of Matthew 23 and other passages. Matthew 23, chapter 23, verse 23 and 24 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe the mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now you say, what in the world does all that mean? Well, within the big egg, if you would, would to please, there was the need to tithe. And so what they would do is that out of guilt of not dealing with the issues of justice, mercy, and faithfulness, they would obsess on and select out a small thing they could do. And they, they, out of, they would, out of guilt, they would take even the, the little bit of, uh, and these are all 
herbs and spices, they would take the, the mint and the, the dill and the cumin. These are small. They, they would even get down and divide, you know, so many grams of dill would, I would keep and so many grams of dill I would give to God. They would split hairs over the, 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 the tithing of these small bits of things while at the same time grossly ignoring neglecting terribly the, the major things. You see, that's what the perfectionist does. He or she picks on some areas that he or she can control and obsesses on those things to stay in their head so that they will not have to feel or deal with the bigger things in the rest of the egg. They are only going to deal with the yolk. That's why a person can be impeccable in their dress but very immoral in their private life. I've had people that, that I've worked with that have um, been on crusades against pornography, and friend, we need to be on a crusade against pornography. But they obsessively, angrily go after the, 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 those who purvey this pornography, and, and they should be pursued. But you see, they're doing that. While at home, they're watching X-rated movies, are going to uh, movies, uh, houses where they have these kinds of things, or porn shops. They're doing it privately. But you say, well, Jesus went on to explain in Matthew 23, 24. He says, look, you should do these things. Tie the mint and dill coming. That's true. But you should also be aware and deal with the injustices, or justices, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, but these things are things you should have done without neglecting the others. And that's what they do. They obsess on the small things within the yoke that neglect the rest of these things. And therefore, he says in verse 24, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat. I mean, you won't even let a little gnat come into your life. But on the other side, you'll swallow a camel. And that's why a person really is in what we call a toxic faith, and that's what they're doing here. In fact, there's a whole book on toxic faith, and I commend that to your reading. See, partial control of selective things gives the perfectionist an artificial feeling of being, being under control. It is an inward delusion designed to mask the real needs, to hide the flaws, the failures, and, and things like this, or the feelings of being bad. And so I draw an arrow from the yolk back into the white of the egg, or circle. And I write above that denial. Because I am denying all of these other issues back here in the big part of the egg, or the big part of the circle. I deny, ignore those, and I obsess on these little things in the circle. Now, the pastor friend of mine, his obsession is in the medical field, and he just obsesses all the time about and his uh, uh, dentistry needs or, or um, uh, virus needs, just, just all kinds of physical needs. He just obsesses on these things. And I would say to him, George, that's not his name, I says, George, I says, those have nothing to do with the real issue. And I pressed him and pressed him. Over the course of time, it finally came out that he had been molested by his father. But you see, that tremendous amount of shame and tremendous amount of pain he did not want to feel, experience, or look at. 
And therefore, to keep from thinking, feeling, and seeing those things, he took all of his thinking, caring, or not caring, but thinking uh, interests, and he converted them over to the little circle of these medical things, and he became a hypochondriac to the max. You see, if he could focus on his teeth and his sinus and these kinds of things, he did not have to think or feel, think or feel, about the weightier matters inside. You see, partial, you see, this, this denial just continues to go. And we see a, classical, a classic denial story in Scripture, Luke 18, 9 through 14. And it reads, And he also, Jesus, told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. I see that we've discussed this already. Remember, a person, perfectionist, will ignore, hide, avoid the things within him or herself, and he will project them onto somebody else or be critical of somebody else, totally ignoring their own needs. And, uh, and by needs, not just uh, emotional needs, but I mean the needs to deal with some issues. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and remember, a Pharisee is an unrecovered perfectionist. One a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. Now, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. And you just, you almost hear this prayer, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, like uh, swindlers and unjust and adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. You can almost see the, you know, the eschewing that went out, the rejection. I fast twice a week. I pay tithe of all that I get. Did Jesus pause and said, But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now Jesus comments on these two. He says, I tell you this, man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. But he who humbles himself shall be exalted. It's ironic, is it not, that the Pharisee wanted to be exalted. Instead, he gets humbled. The tax gatherer did not even believe he should even look at God, let alone have anything to do with God. He couldn't even come to God. And yet, he is the one that got, hum that got elevated. Needful people get what the perfectionists cannot achieve, the acceptance and love they so tenaciously desire. See, this partial control of people Places, things, emotions, reduces or, reduce, or releases some inner anxiety, but basically it's an illusion of flawlessness. That's just like any other addiction, whether it be alcohol, sex, work, clothes, hair, you know, hobby, an obsession, a total what we call fanaticism, is an effort to keep one from feeling or seeing things that they don't want to see. 
And so that's why Jeremiah still comes back. We've quoted this before, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than, than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? First uh, John 1, 8 and 10 says, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Isn't that amazing? It says that we're not deceiving God, deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And again, the sin is just, it, the word sin again means to miss the mark. But the perfectionist says, I never miss the mark. I'm right on the mark. But God says, no, we all miss the mark. He, uh, Revelation uh, 3.17 Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, it says you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus was, um, through his revelation there, through his spirit, was explaining these people are saying, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. I am altogether God says, well, yeah, you're all together, but you've just forgot where you put some of your parts, the parts you've not processed. The next thing uh, we attempt to do, we, we just mentioned that we try explain to them how they try to relieve pressure with obsessing on certain things uh, in their life, clothes, work, um, things like that, to relieve the pressure. Let me explain to him the purpose of this selective perfectionism or controlism is actually threefold. Now explain why they do this. The first purpose is to relieve anxiety and pressure. To relieve anxiety and pressure. Now, this is actually a false substitute of relief. We've already alluded to Philippians 4, 6, and 7 when God says, let me explain how to release pressure at least one way. He says, be anxious. Now remember, anxiety and fear is the primary emotions of the perfectionist, along with anger. Be anxious for nothing. You know, nothing qualifies for anxiety. Well, what do you do then? Well, but in everything by prayer, rather than performance, and supplication. The word supplication just means to spell it out in all of its details. Spell it out in all the facts. By prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, not only thanksgiving for things that, have, that uh, you would like to have, but thanksgiving for things you have, the things he's provided for you in the past. With thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. Uh, or let your needs be known to God. Well, if you do not have needs, you're not going to go to God with your needs. But to hide your needs, you'll act out in a perfect way, in perfectionism, obsessively staying in your head. Let your request be made known to God. You know what the result is if you do this process? Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice, if you would, please, it doesn't say, And the provision of God. You see, some of us feel that I will have peace when God gives me the provision. That's not what this verse says. God will give you peace with or without the provision. A peace of heart. Because peace is the function of the Holy Spirit. It's not the function of the acquisition or the presence 
or the receiving of things. Do you understand that? Peace is in a person. Peace is not in a provision. That's why he can say, and the peace of God. If you go through this process of prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, that process will give you peace. Well, let you see the peace. In fact, you will have peace that will go beyond logic. It won't be logical, which surpasses all comprehension. You won't even believe it. It's hard to believe. And he goes on record, he shall guard your hearts and guard your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, there are four sources of anxiety. As we explained, the purpose for the selective perfectionism to relieve anxiety, it's fault substitute relief, and there's four sources of this, this anxiety. The first one, again, anxiety is a fear of the unknown. We've alluded to this. Let's review it again. Four sources. One is a fear of feelings, a feeling I don't want to feel. That's illustrated in Luke 10, 41. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. You see, she, she, there was a tremendous amount of feeling. She did not want to, to feel those feelings. But you see, she was feeling those feelings. Or maybe a truth they didn't want to see. When the men were trying to kill Stephen, we see in Acts 7, uh, 56 and 57, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice, made a noise, and they covered their ears. They covered their ears. Now why? Because Stephen was saying some things they didn't want to hear and a tremendous amount of anxiety was coming up and that anxiety coming inside of them they did not want to feel so they covered their ears. And the scripture said they rushed upon him with one impulse and they stoned him to stop from hearing truth they didn't want to hear. Thirdly, assuming a responsibility you do not want to assume. Again, we see that in Mark 7, 11 and uh, 12, and Jesus speaking to Pharisees. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, anything of mine you might have been, uh, might have been helped by is Corbin, that means is, is to say that it's given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. You see, Jesus was pointing out they had a responsibility to take care of their, their aging parents. And they did not want to fulfill that responsibility. What they wanted to do is they wanted the approval of the, of the people of the temple because, you see, they would take the money that was, should have gone to take care of their parents. They'd take it down to the temple and people would say, wow, look at this guy. Look at the awesome gift he's giving. And he got approval for people. But in order to do that, he had to rob his aging parents from the resource, of the resources that, were, that God had provided for the children to take care of the parents. See, they did not want to fulfill that responsibility. Third thing, assuming responsibility, third one is realizing a motive you, you do not want to acknowledge. Now, in John 11, 47, 48, we see this illustrated. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. Remember, they're trying to get Jesus to kill him, to get rid of him. And they were saying, what are we doing? You know, what are we allowing going on here? For this man is performing many signs. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him instead of us. And then notice the next line here. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, were they concerned of what the people believed? 
Well, yes and no. They really didn't care what they believed, but they were afraid if these people really believed Jesus, they would not support the system that the Jews and the Pharisees were trying to support and keep going because they were receiving money and uh, personal benefit, and they had positions of power, and they didn't want their positions of power taking, taken away. So they were hiding their real motives by saying, we just can't let this man teach these kinds of things. Well, it isn't because of truth they were concerned. Is because of the insecurity and fear of being replaced themselves. Often I, I use an illustration of a, of a ranch house, a one-level house with a basement. And down in the basement, we have feelings, truth, motives, and responsibilities. Now, now and then, God's Spirit goes down in that basement, so to speak, and this is just a word picture now, and takes a feeling that we don't want to feel and brings it up to the first, starts bringing up the first floor. Now up comes that feeling, like the feeling inside of us. We hear the creaking of uh, the steps in the basement. We know something's coming up. We know it's a feeling coming up, but we don't want to feel that feeling. So we lock the door and start stuffing things in front of the door. And the pressure of holding that feeling down and God's pressure bringing it up by His Spirit when those two pressure points meet, that's what I call anxiety. Anxiety. Anxiety, again, is a feeling, motive, truth, responsibility we won't, do not want to deal with. So you can see here that the purpose for this selective perfectionism was threefold. To relieve pressure or anxiety or tension, and uh, we've talked about that. The second purpose of this perfectionism was to give the outward illusion, or we call it putting on the front, that all else is under control, good and flawless inside. So what I do is I, I if I'm talking again on the phone, I have this egg and yolk, and I have this arrow going out of the yolk outside the egg, and I write above that arrow that I've drawn out. Uh, by the way, at the point of that arrow, I draw some people. And then I write above that arrow, outward illusion. This person, egg person, <laughs> no, don't call him an egghead, this egg person is doing this outward performance, this outward illusion to all these people. Now this outward illusion to all these people is designed to get them to think and to feel and to realize that there is nothing wrong, no flaw inside. It's going right back to the Garden of Eden and we're going to hide, we're going to cover this program up. We're going to cover it up. I don't want, Adam and Eve covered their, their skin with the fig leaves. Later on, God covered them with uh, the uh, skins of animals. But they covered with fig leaves. They didn't want anyone to see the skin for shame. Then they hid from God because they thought, if God would just even see me, even with these fig leaves on, he would see the real me and reject me. And that fear began right inside. So they tried. The fig leaves gave the outward illusion, hey, there's nothing wrong. But then when they heard God, they knew God could see through the fig leaves. But our perfectionism is basically a Jodash, stylish, jean outfit to keep from someone seeing the sources of shame, the guilt, the shame, the fear inside Again, Matthew 23 explains this in verse 25. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup, that's the yoke, those issues there, and of the dish. He uses a word picture of a cup and a dish. But inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Now you notice, I've had, you know, I've seen many unrecovered perfectionists. They will, they will, they will be very frugal in certain outward things uh, with themselves and with their wives and their kids and things like that. But down deep, down deep, they got all kinds of self-indulgence. They will not let the wife get a new, you know, vacuum cleaner or something, but they'll buy a new bass boat. You know, it's, it's any adult toy is okay for perfectionists, but it's not okay for somebody else. He says, look, you're full of robbery, self-deception. Verse 26, you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. He says, don't stop doing necessarily the things you're doing on the outside, but also clean out the inside so that the inside matches the outside. But with the Pharisee, the perfectionist, the obsessive-compulsive personality, their outside is a lie because the inside is where the real truth is, and they're full of things. In fact, he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisee, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Now, so they used to do that. They'd, they'd build these tombs out of rock, you know, mud or things like that. And, and the earth color was, was not really attractive because they knew what was inside and it was not very sightly. And so they would, they would mix a, a, uh, a whitewash and they would whitewash, white paint these rocks because when you would then look at the tomb, you would not think of the corruption inside the tomb, the decaying body. What you would see was only the white. And you would have, your eyes would see white and you would feel good. You would not see the corruption in the tomb and feel bad. So that was a, you whitewashed tombs, which on the outside, outside appear to be beautiful. But inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. You see, that's the greater part of why you live. Issues and things that you feel that are unclean, flawed, bad. And remember I said at the outset here, there is legitimate guilt, illegitimate guilt, or false guilt. There's legitimate shame, illegitimate shame, false shame. There's legitimate fear, fear of the Lord, and there's illegitimate fear. There's false fear. You fear you don't need to fear, you see. Verse 28 says, Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men. You've got it all together. But inwardly, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness or rebellion. And that's what, when Dr. David Stoops said, that perfectionism is basically an acting out of rebellion of God. That's where it came from. You see, the biggest rule makers tend to be the biggest rule breakers. That's why when you you look at some of the televangelist scandals and, and the the harsh preaching they would do against wickedness and sin, and, and wickedness and sin needs to be preached against. There's no question about that. But when done in harshness, usually they have either done it or are doing it or are about to do it. 
See, this is an effort to hide the presence of shame and guilt of hypocrisy and to protect our own pride. I had a woman recently who was very concerned that maybe her husband was going to have an affair and just worried and obsessed about that. It didn't take long in the hour interview, conversation, counseling time to realize that she had a crush on a male where she worked. But you see, she was projecting her guilt onto him against that statement. He's got, she's got the cancer, but he has to take the cobalt treatment. Well, the purpose for selective perfectionism, again, the second one is to give the outward illusion. The third reason is to gain the approval of others, which they desperately lack within, or lack within growing up. The outward efforts of performance are driven not led, by the way, by the inner compulsions to perform to gain recognition, acceptance, approval, due to a great deal of criticism or lack of love from the past. That's why Matthew 23, again, parts of verses 5, 6, and 7, says they do their deeds to be noticed by men. Furthermore, they say they love the place of honor, the chief seats, the respectful seatings, greetings, not seating, greetings, I guess they had respectful seatings too. Why did they do that? That they might be noticed, they might get the approval of men. You see, if we have unfinished business in adulthood, we will act out the unfinished childhood business in adulthood. That's why John 12, 43 says, they love the approval of men and here's the tragedy, rather than the approval of God. You see, the perfectionist does not perform for God. He, he or she performs for people. God has been dethroned and man has been enthroned. Father or mothers have been enthroned. That's why I draw an arrow from the people outside the egg, an arrow back into the yolk part of the egg. And I call that the approval, the validation, the value transfer. Because you see, they perform outwardly to get in return validation, approval from others. Well, the next aspect that we go in to explain to one who's working through the area of perfectionism, and again, we all have it, is to try to explain that the energy to maintain an outward front is totally consuming and can be compulsive. Really, it's just an expansion of all what we've talked about already. You see, the need for the outside order is to help reduce, minimize the stresses of the disorder inside and to prevent feelings or uh, prevent feeling negative feelings. See, they're this is totally in opposition to God's uh, prescription for peace. We've talked about that. You see, he will try to seek, to again, to control people, places, and things, not to deal with, however, the, in order not to deal with the turmoil inside. <laughs> it's interesting. In my office, I've got a beautiful oil painting in my first church, and, and I have been noticed to be a little... Um, much of a kidder from time to time, and I'll, I'll take that picture and I will move it 
off skew. So it's it, it's off skew to the side, knowing that my next person I'm going to be seeing is a to-be-recovered perfectionist. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll move that, that picture over. And they'll come in, they'll sit on the couch, and I'm sitting in my chair, and they begin talking, and we open in prayer. And, and as we are dialoguing together, I will notice that their eyes keep looking up to that picture. And their concentration on what I'm saying and what they're saying is really distracted. And I have actually had them bolt out of their seat and go over and straighten that picture and sit down and go, oh, now I can concentrate. You see, what happened was that distraction, that picture up there was out of order, and that out-of-order picture was getting touched with some out-of-order on the inside, and the person could not relax until that order was taken care of. Now, let me give you another practical illustration. As a wife, Sometimes I've heard it said by a wife, I cannot go to sleep unless my kitchen is completely clean. Now, I'm not talking about just general sanitation, general tidiness. I'm talking about impeccable, right down, perfect, everything clean, clean counters, clean table, everything washed, put away. I mean, it's all done. <sighs> now I can relax. It's done. Just say when you, when you look at that, your peace is predicated on the orderliness of things outside you or around you. And again, the Spirit of God is peace from the inside out, not the outside in. I was counseling a person one time in a basement of a church, and, and off the room, uh, the restroom was nearby, and, and apparently the, the uh, toilet was still running, having been flushed, and and while we're talking, finally he just, in the middle of our marriage counseling on very serious issues, he just sprang up and ran to the bathroom and, and uh, jiggled the handle to, to get the toilet to stop from running. And he came in. He said, did you hear that toilet running? Did you hear that? You know how bad it is. And he went on and says, this is terrible to have that money. You're wasting all that water. And he just went on and on and on. Now here's a guy who's concerned about excesses of water being uh, drained down a toilet. While on the other side, he is deliberately hurting, abusing his wife, totally ignorant of that, but alert to a running toilet. Remember I said, things and the order of things are more important than people. You see, no effort, no relationship is spared control or criticism to maintain this outward illusion and inward self-delusion which will keep him from feeling certain feelings. The motto is stay in control, which will reduce the anxiety and security and prevent any kind of loss. You see this, parents doing this to the children. If I can keep the children behaving well, people will think I'm a good parent because down deep I have felt and people have made me feel that I am not a good parent. And again, there are no perfect parents. Every parent has got some needs that they have to work on in life. Well, after we explain that the energy uh, is to maintain an outward front, is totally consuming and can be compulsive, then explain next is that the primary drive in emotion, or emotions, mentioned this before, again, are fear and anger. It's not love, not joy, not peace, but fear and anger. 
Again, the, it's the fear of failing, then a discovery of flaws, of things that are out of control, and thus uh, feels, the person feels a sense of shame. Again, we go from this fear, this fear of anyone ever finding out about what's going on inside. So when I explain this, say in the phone or draw on a board, I draw an arrow, another arrow, out of the yoke, and then I go over the top of the egg and come down from the top of the egg right back into the, into the white side, into the white of the yolk. The white of the egg, I'm sorry, not the yolk. And I explain to him, I says, now this, this is a fear of disclosure. It's a fear. And the fear of disclosure to others, an object of shame, guilt, and embarrassment. I am afraid if someone discovers what's in the white part of this yolk, sorry, the white part of this egg, What's in the white part of this egg? I don't want them to see this, so I live in constant fear. It's this fear of disclosure. Again, from past, present, or even future actions or desires. A uh, brother I was working with, he, he was in a very compulsive, uh, very fearful, perfectionistic uh, practice in his own life, and I, I asked him, uh, is there anything ever happened in the past to him that uh, he was ashamed of, and he didn't ever want to talk about it, didn't want anyone to know about it. Boy, he fidgeted and fidgeted there. And then Paul said, well, uh, see, he's about 43 years old. He said, well, I, I don't have a high school diploma. For years, I have lied about the fact that I didn't have a high school diploma. And I have a real, real fear that someone will discover that I don't have a high school diploma. See, that's what that arrow coming out of the yolk going in the major part of the white part of the egg, the large part of the circle. See, back there, he had in his history, he did not have a high school diploma, and he had in his history a whole system of covering up so people will not ever see or feel that he did not have a high school diploma. Many times uh, there are shameful things like alcoholic parents or molestations or abuse. There's just a lot of pain and shame past it that they want to know about and they want to look through it themselves. See, it's basically, this fear has it at its root, a fear. If you knew the truth about me, you would leave me or abandon me. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They hid from God because if God was ever see them for who they are, they would go through the pain of rejection. And by the way, they had no experience yet of pain and rejection, but they knew potentially what it was going to be. I don't know, I understand, I don't understand how they did because there was no history of it. But the sense of shame is not logical. Many times it's not logical. Because the, the fear of abandonment is, although it's a real, uh, it's a real fear that people feel, it's not a legitimate fear. In fact, again, their logic is, if people really knew me, they wouldn't like me, and, and I would experience for their loss. But this is totally contrary to truth or reality. Like, for example, Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 8. It says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. He gave this advice to the Israelites in Deuteronomy. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your way of life be free from the love of money, 
Be content with what you have. For he, for he himself says, I will never desert you or leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. God goes on record. You will not be abandoned. But remember, the, the perfectionist has a childlike perspective. There were losses and abandonments in his young childhood. And he now in adulthood has carried that luggage into adulthood. And he believes in adulthood the same things he believed in childhood. What is not true. Romans 8, 38-39. Paul says, look, for I am convinced, you know, down deep is a core belief, that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or things present or things to come or powers or height or death or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It cannot be done. But you see, if you feel like it can be done, then you will act like it can be done and act out like it can be done. You say, well, wait a minute. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. People are not fear, fearful necessarily of abandonment from God. They are fearful of abandonment of people. That's true. But notice where they put their security. In people. I can't handle the fact that people abandon me. Dear friends, that's because people are on the throne. People are gods to us, and that's small g gods. To the degree that you are secure in your relationship with Christ, to that same degree, you can be honest and open and truthful in human relationships. But may I put the antithesis to this? To the degree that you are not secure in your relationship in Christ, to that same degree, you will not be honest and open and faithful in your relationships with others. That fear of abandonment is a childhood emotion that needs to be put away. Again, that's what Paul has talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. As a child, I reasoned, as a child, I reasoned, thought, and acted like a child, but when I became an adult, I put away the childish things. Sometimes those putting away means we have to replace them, replace them on that throne with the Lord Jesus. You see, these fears are really, this fear of discovery is, is like a trap. And that trap soon becomes a prison with the lock and the keys on the inside. That's why Proverbs 29, 20, uh, excuse me, 29, 25 says, the fear of man or the fear of rejection of man brings a snare or is a trap or is a prison. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. So what does exaltation have to do with the fear of man? Because of the fear of loss and being de-exalted, demoted, reduced. But the beautiful part is that he who trusts in the Lord, he will get what he's fearful of losing. But no, it's putting the right people on the right throne. This fear traps and keeps you in an abusive relationships or even prevents him from having a relationship. You see, we have to remember, no human relationship is 100% risk-free. I mean, ask Paul, for example. I mean, Paul, you know, he should have had 100% loyalty on everybody because of the way he gave his life over and over again to help people. Well, when you get to 2 Timothy 4, 16 to 17, you find some interesting words. Paul writing at the end of his ministry to Timothy, and he says, 
At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. It may not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear that I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. But notice what he said up front. But at my first defense in Rome, he said, no one stood with me. I mean, there was no one there to support me. I'm there by myself. Now you would think someone who had all these friends, would minister all these people, all these spiritual children, great-grandchildren, Somebody would have stood there. I think there were some around him, and it might have been an over oversimplification. I think Dr. Luke was with him. But either way, someone that prominent still had to realize that the bottom line is not what human stands with me that means as much as what God stands with me. You know, Jesus is recorded in Mark 15, 35. Uh, four, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," which is translated, "My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me?" 